You're listening to Market Champions, a podcast on navigating the financial markets. Here's your host, Shabas Prakash. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Market Champions. Today I've got my friend Jeff Snyder on. Jeff Snyder is, I guess, the founder of Eurodollar University. He's very well known for his work on monetary economics. Jeff, thank you so much for uh, joining the podcast again. It's wonderful to have you back on. Oh, I'm always excited to talk with you, Shri. Can't wait yeah. to get it started. Absolutely. You know, it's it's um for anyone listening, you know, Jeff sort of holds the record for the most number of appearances on my podcast. So uh yeah, he is kind of continuing to continuing to hold that record. So <laughs> we got to add to it. We got to keep always got to stay a step ahead of everyone else. Exactly. So, Jeff, you know, let's get started by talking a bit about, you know, what's happened or what's sort of unraveled over the last few weeks. So one you know, sort of everyone on Twitter has gone from, you know, being sort of a Russia, Ukraine expert to becoming a banking expert in a matter of minutes so um with regards to what's going on in the banking sector you know what's sort of your take on it um you know when you first saw it you know did you you know what were your thoughts you know is this is this sort of a contagion risk that you're worried about here you know what are you thinking yeah there's a whole lot going on here and you're right it's funny how everybody suddenly became i know all about silicon valley bank never heard those heard those uh, words together before but <laughs> silicon valley bank i yeah i can tell you exactly what went wrong there exactly um, so, that's that's you know that's where we start with is that you know we have what is Silicon Valley Bank what actually happened does it really matter and from my my perspective the individual bank failure whether it's SVB or Signature First Republic or any of the regional banks those are sort of small issue here to the lar- larger picture which I think we were reminded of last week when. We've got focus. Everybody was an expert on U.S. regional banks, and suddenly everybody's an expert on Swiss banks because then Credit Suisse, something happens there. So as you can see, just from those two data points, there's a little bit more going on here than just something at regional banks. There's a systemic issue here, and it's not surprising at all. I know everybody said, oh, this is unexpected. How could this have happened? But markets have been warning us about this this very scenario for months and months and months and months. So the markets have said deflationary money, nasty recession, bad stuff, those things are likely to happen. And then lo and behold, not only that, it happens when it happened. It happened at what happens to be a systemic seasonal low point in the calendar, middle of March. So everything that has gone on over the last couple of weeks is checking every box, one box after another, for systemic liquidity problem. You know, specifically, you know, what is the specific problem? It's tough to say when it's just now still unfolding. We don't really have an idea of exactly what's going on, but we do know that this, this is a big thing and it hasn't gone away. And I think that's probably the most important takeaway is that here we are almost in April, two weeks after it all started, and the markets are still looking forward as if the future is just as bad or worse than the last couple of weeks have been. So nothing changed as far as did things get better? Was SVB sort of the, the last thing that happened was credit Suisse's a merger. Did that, did that satisfy the marketplace, the monetary system enough that we can get back to normal again? And the answer is a big fat no. 
So, so is so essentially what you're saying is, you know, the problem um, has not been solved. I mean, it's sort of been patched up. I mean, sure, you know, Credit Suisse was acquired by UBS. But other than that, what you're saying is, you know, we really have not found sort of a proper structural solution to the problem. Yeah, if, if you want to talk about in terms of like physics, you know, equilibrium econ economics, um, we have an unstable system that is looking to find an equilibrium that is stable. And usually when we get into these crisis periods, that means a lot of leverage and money destroyed, balance sheet capacity needs to be destroyed to go to a lower equilibrium state. And it looks like that happened, but we didn't reach the equilibrium. There's still We're still in the uh, uncertain and unstable situation, even after everything that's happened. You know, the Fed came up with a brand new tool which is always odd because before this all happened, they said, we have all the tools we need. We have all the tools we could ever need. And then suddenly, oh, we got a new tool. Yeah, um, the, yeah the governments came up, you know, the FSOC last Friday, which, you know, people probably hadn't even heard that thing existed. Maybe you heard it a, a decade ago with Dodd-Frank. Suddenly the FSOC pops up on the radar and says, hey, it's, a, you know, there's some isolated strains, but everything is fine and resilient. Uh, so, you know, here we are looking at all of these things. We're looking one after another, after another, the markets are saying it's still unstable. It's still happening. There's still problems to be worked out and solved. And it's not really about, you know, are the governments going to handle it? Or are central banks going to handle it? No, nobody really expects that to happen, which is why after they keep coming up with these statements and tools, yep. nothing changes in the market. There's absolutely no faith whatsoever in the governments and markets, because why would there be? Why would there be exactly? And and you know, I think the I think what's interesting is uh, so with regards to the current problem, um, as it's stated, you know, the typical explanation has been that you know collateral values have been eroded because the Fed has been hiking interest rates, and so therefore you know the duration risk has sort of manifested itself because you know for example, uh, Silicon Valley Bank had put about sixty percent of its capital into. Um, long duration investments, including mortgage backed securities, et cetera. And so what ended up happening is, you know, the value of this collateral went down and then, you know, therefore, you know, Silicon Valley was sort of, the people say that Silicon Valley was sort of isolated or idiosyncratic in the fact that it had 60% of its capital in those long-term instruments versus um, either, uh, versus, you know, say a Bank of America or like one of the largest banks, which has say 15% in that kind of, uh, in the, in that kind of instrument. And so therefore, you know, most banks are actually pretty well protected against something like that. So, you know, how far do you agree with that statement? Well, I think that's what everybody says, but I don't think that's what's happened. <laughs> As usual, it's not, you know, it's not the value of the assets or not the market value of the assets. It's being forced to sell them while they're down in price. So something happened. We, I mean, Silicon Valley Bank had a depositor run. They've had a, a cash drain like all regional banks have had over the last last year, year and a half or so, which mm -hmm. left them in a precarious position. And then suddenly you get a little bit of a depositor run. And they had to for they had to fire sale. They were forced to sell these assets, these US treasuries and MBS that were that were down in value. I think it was agency bonds, but it doesn't really matter. It's not the, the assets that were sold, it was the bank being forced to sell. Why didn't Silicon Valley Bank have other alternatives? Why? I mean, the last thing anybody will ever do, because it's the last thing you want to do, is to fire sale assets that are down in value. Because whatever experience, whatever liability run you're experiencing, that will only make it worse, as it did with SVB, because they booked an almost $2 billion loss on selling U.S. treasuries, which simply reignited the depositor run. So the issue, systemically, isn't about the part, the paper value or the current value of U.S. Treasuries. It's why 
these banks are being forced to sell them because all they would need to do is just hold them. Yep. You hold it to maturity and you're going to get paid off. There's no, there's no, um, there's no risk. There's no uncertainty with holding U.S. Trades or agency MBS. You're not going to get as much a return as you could get in the marketplace. You know, there's, it will be less profitable, but at least you'll be around. You'll be alive. Yep. So you don't sell their assets unless you're forced to. And that's really the issue here. Why was Silicon Valley Bank forced to? Well, we kind of know because of the depositor run. But what we don't know is why didn't SVB appeal to alternatives? Why didn't they hit up the FHLB for advances? Why didn't they hit up the Fed's primary credit? And if they didn't qualify for primary credit, maybe they could have been the first one ever to use secondary credit. There were options available unless, Sri, as you kind of pointed out here, they didn't have the right collateral to do it because normally you get yourself in a situation where your deposit funding or any other type of, maybe some other wholesale funding leaves, you take some of your loans, you pledge them as, you take a pool, pledge them as collateral to say Goldman Sachs or JP Morgan and say, let me borrow some US treasuries. I can liquefy these illiquid loans in repo using those borrowed treasuries as collateral. I'm still in business. It's gonna cost me, it's gonna be a little bit expensive. Goldman Sachs or JP Morgan are not going to offer the best terms because they know I'm in trouble, but still, it's better than the alternative, which is lights out. Why didn't that happen? So that's the issue is not about SVB, and it's not about SVB selling U.S. Treasuries, nor is it about the U.S. Treasuries. It's why they were forced into sales when they should have had a variety of other options to, re to, to remain viable and solvent. That's the, that's the thing here. And when you transfer that to Credit Suisse, it becomes even more of a question because, you know, Brent Johnson's brought this up a couple of days ago, talking with Brent. Why now? Because Credit Suisse is sort of a, a bank, uh, national pride. This is, you know, the Swiss bank that we all think of. The last thing the government or central bank there wants to do is to nationalize or put together some sort of bailout. You know, take Credit Suisse, UBS, I mean, Credit Suisse disappears. This is the last thing the Swiss government wanted to do. And they've let Credit Suisse sort of twist in the wind as a troubled bank for years. Yep. Why now? Why all of a sudden now is this happening? Because there's more going on here than just Credit Suisse or SVB. There's systemic issues that were revealed in the middle of March because the middle of March is one of the weakest parts of the liquidity calendar. And, and do you have an idea of what the systemic issue is? Is this like a dollar shortage issue? You know, what, what, what exactly is going on? There is a number of things. Uh, again, as I said, we can't say for sure because I can't call up the, you know, the trading desk at every bank and say, hey, why are you pulling back you know, from your capacity? But it's reasonable to assume that there's a couple things happening here. One of them is just general risk aversion from money dealers, which is left over from 2021. Um, if you go back again, like I said before, the markets saw this coming not a mile away, but years away. You saw the yield curve and other curves begin to flatten way back in 2021, when right when consumer price uh, CPIs and consumer prices themselves began to accelerate. And I think that was the market saying, we've seen this play out before and it doesn't end up really well. So just the stuff that happened, the distortions, the massive monetary as well as economic distortions from 2020 and 2021, put dealers, money dealers, those who create money and credit on the back foot saying, you know, maybe we need to lighten up here and we need to de-risk our balance sheet, that kind of thing. And then as 2021 became 2022, 
You had that big spike in oil, Russian invasion of Ukraine. That only made it that much worse because if you're a money dealer, you're already somewhat risk averse. You're just going to become even more risk averse. And mm -hmm. it just kind of snowballed from there because this is there's this self-reinforcing vicious cycle Whereas money dealers pull back, markets become more volatile, that's a drag in economic growth, and it just becomes this one big soup of nastiness. And what does that do? That causes money dealers to pull back even more, and just round and round and round it goes. And then we saw that reach become a public issue in September and October last year. Yeah. Everybody thought that was about UK and London and gilts, and it wasn't. Again, it was systemic monetary problem, global dollar shortage that had already reached really crisis proportions to the point that, you know, we were talking about Swiss dollar auctions in October. And so there's, it's just been a continuous process over the last almost year and a half now, really almost two years, where it just gets further and further and further in that direction to the point that, you know, systemic fragility, monetary fragility, inelasticity, whatever whatever term you want to apply, they've just become more and more severe to the point that we just the system just can't handle even minor swings in whatever the whatever it happens to be. Got it. Got it. Yeah, and I think um sort of on that note, so you know, I think the thing people point out that the difference between 2008 and what's going on now is that 2008 was precipitated by credit risk in the sense that, you know, banks lent to people who couldn't pay off their mortgages, the so-called subprime mortgages. And so that eventually came to bite them back. And so Lehman Brothers went down because of credit risk, while um, SVB is going down because of duration risk. So, you know, one, you know, considering your view of what, what actually went on in 2008, you know, what do you think of that explanation? And two, you know, what are sort of the similarity, similarities and differences, you know, of the current sort of situation versus uh, what happened back in 2008? There are a lot of similarities, but not specific similar. They're in general terms. In fact, I, I've called it the 2008 style scenario or 2008 type scenario, but it's not 2008 as you're, as you're saying. There's a lot of differences. And I would, I would agree with the general characterization that, yeah, there was, there was more credit risk in 2008 as compared to today, but there is the same symptoms where you know, if you really had to distill the 2008 monetary crisis in a single concept, it would have been collateral shortage. And if you look at 2022 and probably look back from 2024 or 2023, you can say the same thing again for what's going on now. It's we still have a collateral shortage problem, but it's really it becomes that comes back to money dealer capacities, risk aversion, those types of things. So even though they manifest themselves differently every time, in broad general terms. It's basically the same stuff over and over again. Uh, inelasticity because of variety of factors that just the system cannot tolerate too much, too too far of a swing in either direction without breaking something. So it's an unstable inherent. It's an inherently unstable system to begin with that just it just can't handle um, disruptions to it. And instead of you know, being robust and resilient the way that it's always talked about by politicians, particularly Janet Yellen, she used that term again last Friday. It's resilient. Well, it doesn't look resilient because it isn't. It's no, a fragile system that continues to repeat along these same fault and fracture lines time and time again because they're never, ever actually fixed. It's amazing that we can ever have these reflationary periods because it's like we're just setting ourselves up to repeat the thing again. 
Yep. And I think, you know, that 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 sort of brings us to like the like your mention of reflation brings us to sort of an interesting question, which is you know, considering what is going on in the banking sector, like considering what is going on in the banking sector, if you take that just sort of on its own, you know, people are in general like economists or economics 101 would sort of suggest that in order to fix that kind of problem, you should reduce interest rates. And then when you look at the actual problem of inflation, you know, people would argue that you should continue to keep rates high. And, you know, so sort of on that note, so how are you thinking about, you know, one, what the Fed should be doing, you know, going forward from here and what that means for the so-called hiking cycle? So, you know, the the, the argument now is sort of, you know, are they going to hike another 25 bips in May or not? And, you know, as much as to an extent that's just semantics, you know, when, well, you know, what, what does this actually mean for the way the Fed has been hiking? Do they well, start yeah, to reverse it's, it's right. It's not semantics. And, you know, the Fed is the least interesting part of all this. It's just how they're reacting to what they're misidentifying as the problem, or they're being forced to misidentify it as a problem because of the politics of the situation. And the Fed started aggressively hiking rates last year because the White House and Congress were all over them to say, we need to be appearing to do something about what we are calling inflation. When the Fed correctly identified from the beginning, this wasn't inflation. It was just a temporary transitory, dare I say that word? A transitory imbalance between demand and supply. And people think you're being pedantic when you say when you're when you when you point out that there's a difference here, but it really it's like the difference between heart disease and cancer. You wouldn't treat them the same way uh, because there's differences in uh, treatment as well as diagnosis and prevention. So inflation is an out of control monetary situation where banks are creating way too much money and credit. We never had that situation. So the, we don't need to put the, the kibosh or the brakes on the banking system because the banking system has been doing the opposite, waiting for the situation that we do have to resolve itself in exactly the way it is doing right now. So if it's not monetary inflation, I hate that term because inflation is monetary. If it's instead a supply shock, just a temporary imbalance between supply and demand, it will work itself out. It won't work itself out in a happy Goldilocks scenario but if you do nothing, if the Fed sat back last year and, and for what, if it actually was an independent agency and did absolutely nothing, I don't know if anything would have changed. We still would have had the same problems. They, we, we wouldn't have treasury values falling, but we would have had same deflationary monetary problems because eventually the situation was going to rectify itself in this sort of deflationary recession type response that we're going through right now. So the Fed is reaching the end of its rate hike cycle. It's like it's a good chance it's done already. There's a slight chance they get another rate hike in. The market is absolutely certain it doesn't matter. If the Fed hikes another one or another two, what ends up happening is eventually, in very short order, uh, probably the second half of the year, once the rate cuts start, they're going to come fast and furious. So that part has always been, you know, you look at the inverted curves, that, that's been the scenario they've been pricing from the very beginning. Once the rate cuts start, they're coming fast and furious. The question was always around when or how far the Fed would get before that pivotal point. And so, again, for, for our purposes, it's not really about the rate hikes. It's not really about the Fed. It's about what is going to trigger the Fed going from politics. We need to be aggressive about inflation, which, I mean, they sort of sounded the same way this last meeting. We still have our eye on inflation when the market is saying, are you kidding me? That's the last thing you should be worried about. So there's there's something going to happen. And this has been the case ever since the curve's inverted. There was a high probability that something or a combination of something, some things 
would happen, which would cause the Fed to start lowering interest rates. And, you know, when this started showing up last year, people were like, well, I don't see how that could be. But here we are heading toward April 2023. And now it's not so hard of a, it's not so much so much of so much of a big stretch to wonder what is it that's going to get the Fed out of its rate hikes? I mean, because you got banking difficulties, you got all sorts of economic risks. It's just there's there's enough that's even visible and available for the public to look at and say, yeah, it really makes sense why there could be or there's a good probability there could be rate cuts in the second half of this year. And do you think a lot of that has to do with the fact that the rate curve also remain the, the yield curve remains inverted? And so um to an extent the Fed is forced to um cut cut interest rates so that um the yield curve sort of goes back to normal, goes back to a steep shape. Um and and you know, people usually argue that the yield curve actually matters or like net interest margin is but is is a key driver of, of lending in the economy. So, you know, how far, you know, do those arguments or how far does that arguments correct? No, I think you know. I think that's the wrong way to look at the yield curve because it's it's not about you know spreads and lending and things like that. It's about you know, pre predictions and expectations. It's about uh, perceptions of risk. It's about what's really going on in the system. Um, and it's not even really about the Fed. The Fed isn't trying to re-steepen the yield curve when it cuts rates. The Fed, as always, is reacting to something that markets predicted would happen. So the Fed is always looking backward at what just happened. The markets are always looking forward at what will happen. And eventually those two things align. So the market right now is saying, we're afraid that something in the banking system is going to break again and break even worse than it has already. And if that happens, that's likely to lead the Fed to cut rates because that's what the Fed does in these deflationary types of situations. So it's really a difference in timing. Markets are saying, we predict this is going to happen. And oh, by the way, over the last year, everything that it's been predicting has is unfolded. And so what happens is the Fed follows the market, not because it wants to change the yield curve, but because the market is predicting events that it knows will, will cause the Fed to react in a very predictable fashion, because this is what they do. So it's just a matter of when these things happen that, that, that forces the Fed out of its focus on CPIs and onto focusing onto something else. Whether or not CPIs and consumer prices are still high and accelerating, that's really the point here is something has to happen, which will likely get them out of rate hikes, even if consumer price indexes are still rising at a relatively uncomfortable rate. And the really the list of things that could do that are have always been thin. And on that list is exactly what just yep. happened in March, except the, as you're saying, Sri, the markets are saying we're not done with this. This isn't done. This isn't just a one off. So it's all coming together in a very logical, intuitive, and is in, in very predicted fashion. Because yep. markets have been saying, this is coming, this is coming, this is coming. And now they're saying, okay, it came. There's still more coming. More to come, yeah. Yep. And I think, um, so, you know, you brought up that point about risk perception. So, you know, sort of in Finance 101, you're usually taught that you know, the more, you know, the higher the risk, you know, the higher the return. And so, you know, in that, so, you know, from that framework, you know, would it be fair to say that considering, say, the three month or the two year um, treasury yields a lot, uh, yields more than the 10 year treasury? So what the markets are, what markets are essentially saying is that over the short run, the risk is actually higher than sort of over the next 10 years, like over the like short term, uh, short risk over the short run is actually elevated. Is that is that what the yield curve is saying? Is that what you're trying to say? 
No, I think what the markets are actually saying is that the Fed has artificially pushed up interest rates at the short end by offering alternatives for the RRP, RUAR, what do they call it now? IOR, I don't care. Interest on reserves, whatever the case may be. So they offer their higher alternatives, which has distorted the yield curve because the yield curve, if you own a two-year treasury, you think, well, a two-year treasury that's yielding 4%, but if I get 5% from the Fed, do I really want to own a two-year treasury? So it, it pulls rates up, even though rates don't want to go up. What the long end of the curve is saying is that I'll bet you there's going to be a time over the next five or 10 years when it will pay off owning safe and liquid instruments because safety and liquidity are going to become a huge priority in the marketplace. So even if the Fed is offering a 5% RRP rate, for example, today, I'll bet you in the next several years, the rates are going to go down, but I'll bet you more people are going to want to own safe and liquid instruments that have nothing to do with the Fed. So I'm going to buy those safe and liquid instruments. Or actually, I'm going to hedge using those safe and liquid instruments today in anticipation. Yep. As more people agree with that position and fewer people agree with the Fed's position about rate hikes, that's what distorts the curve. And you can break it down in real fundamental terms as Irving Fisher did, where it's just if you think growth and inflation is going to be lower or growth and inflation are going to be lower in the future, you want to own instruments that do well when growth or relatively well when growth and inflation are less. So that's again, safe liquid instruments. So it all, it all makes sense and it all fits together, starting with the Fed, the fact that the Fed has distorted the interest rate curve, but only at the front end, because that's the limit of its reach. And the markets have been disagreeing and betting against the Fed, hedging against the Fed for about a year now, more heavily since last June. And as events have unfolded, that have, as we said, it, you know, it's just confirmed those suspicions and fears and risks all along because this is what the markets have been hedging against. So if you're sitting here today and the three or the 10-year treasury, the five-year treasury yields so much less than the two-year, that's simply saying that. Well, at some point, this is going to pay off because people are going to want more duration than less duration. Mm -hmm. And I'm already owning something that's going to go up way in price, uh, regardless of yield and regardless of what the Fed does. Because likely in a situation where safety and liquidity pay off, the Fed's not going to be raising rates and offering higher rate alternatives. It's going to be offering lower rate alternatives. So even better that I own these longer term instruments today. Uh-huh. A hundred percent. And I think, you know, one of the things that you also mentioned was um the fact that so, you know, the 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 CPI, you know, one of the blames um for why the CPI has been going up is, you know, sort of the measure of OER or owner's equivalent rent as a measure of housing inflation. And the thing about OER is, you know, it's sort of very slow moving versus sort of, I guess, the short-term banking or short-term liquidity crisis, which is a lot more fast moving and has and so you know, it's it's very interesting how, you know, say for example, back in Back in the fall, but I think back in October, as you know, the BOE was very you know furiously pursuing a policy of QT and hiking and whatnot. And then as soon as you know something gave way in the in the gilts market, now they switched around, you know, switched to a policy of essentially QE, where the bank, the central bank, stepped in, started buying bonds from the pension funds, and you know the pension funds were saved. And you know similarly on the flip side, you know over here. What we're seeing is, you know, as soon as somebody, you know, the Fed is furiously fighting inflation and, you know, you know, Jay Powell is going to be the next Paul Volcker, whatever. And as soon as, you know, something goes wrong, you know, it's like a, it's like a switch. And this is where they, they almost flip around immediately, step in with their BTFP program, which is very well named. Uh, and, <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's, 
it's, you know, it's, it's sort of very interesting to see. Um, you know, in the you know, just to that end, you know, do you did do you think the Fed or the BOE, you know, do you think they knew about these structural problems beforehand or these structural soft spots beforehand? Um, or were they just very poor at monitoring what was going on? No, it's, you know, they're they're not really central banks. They have no idea what's going on in the monetary system. So they're trying to influence the monetary system by looking at economic aggregates, right? They're looking at CPIs, which, as you were just saying, are riddled with things like imputations and adjustments, which, I mean, in normal times, everybody has a problem with the CPI, as they should. There's a lot of things to dislike about it. But in the long run, during normal times, the CPI is relatively a, a decent indicator. So there's really no reason to to um, to really argue with it. But in times like this, there's no this is no way to run a monetary policy, what's supposed to be a monetary policy by looking by by looking at the unemployment rate, by looking at the consumer price index or the PCE deflator. What that tells you is that the Fed or the BOA don't actually monitor the monetary system, which is why they're constantly surprised by monetary events. So we have something like last fall in the gilt market and the BOA is like, oh, I had no idea this was going on. Let me do something about it after it's already caused the damage. The Fed in March, what did they do? Oh, we had no idea this was going on. We don't really monitor the monetary system. We've been looking at consumer prices from the perspective of the unemployment rate. When way back when, when central banks were central banks, they didn't care about the unemployment rate and CPI. They just said, is the money supply growing too fast? And if it is, we'll correct it. Uh, as Montague Norman, the, the legendary BOE head, said a long time ago, never never apologize, never explain. You know, a central bank goes into the monetary system. If there's too much money, it removes it. If there's not enough money, it adds it. We don't need to wait for economic accounts and economic variables to confirm that situation. But that's not, see, that's not what central banks do. They're not really central banks. So Jay Powell and the FOMC they're looking at the CPI and unemployment rate and trying to game plan ahead whether those two things will have any, any impact on the economy down the road when the monetary system already broke that they didn't see coming. And the monetary system is, is going to be a factor that's, gonna, that's going to set the conditions ahead of time, not the unemployment rate, not the CPI, not any of these macroeconomic variables. And the markets understand the difference here the Fed isn't a monetary agent. It's not a central bank. It's looking at all these other things, and it's always continuously surprised because it isn't a central bank. So the CPI and really a great deal of macroeconomic data that we're going to get over the next couple of weeks is already stale. It's already moot mm -hmm. because there's going to be fallout, as there already has been fallout from last year. The, the fallout's going to be even greater over the weeks and months ahead that won't show up into the economic data that the Fed actually looks at for quite some time further down the road because everything's in arrears. So again, as I said before, instead of watching the monetar monetary system and thinking I need to do this or that to look ahead, the Fed is always looking backwards, whereas the mon monetary system, the markets are always looking forward at what, first of all, what was going to happen and then what, what did happen, how that's gonna play out down the road. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. And, you know, sort of, you know, taking a segue here, um, related, uh, sort of related to this problem, you know, this, this sort of banking, um, quote unquote crisis is, you know, led a lot of Austrian economists to jump out of their, you know, little holes out of the ground. And, you know, they've, 
you know, Austrians have long proposed this idea of narrow banking as sort of a contrast to uh, fractal reserve banking. And um, narrow banking, for anyone listening, is sort of a concept or, you know, the idea for a bank to have 100% um, reserve against deposits. And so, you know, in this fashion, what ends up happening is, uh, you know, they argue that bank rents are caused because, you know, banks will say 10% of reserves or so $10 in reserves for $100 in deposits. And that's not a good, it's a good way to run a bank. So, you know, when it comes to this idea of narrow banking, you know, does, you know, is that something that could actually work? You know, are these Austrian economists finally, you know, proven right? Or is that actually worse than the current system that we have? Oh, I mean, wait till they find out about the Euro dollar system. <laughs> they're still, they're still stuck in the 1950s and before uh, they still have no idea how the monetary system actually works. So, once they get, once they realize what the monetary system actually is, they're going to be even more upset about how banks work. There's always this argument between fixed money and elastic money, and it usually it usually boils down into polar opposite. And it's not just the Austrians. There's you know anybody gold gold standard adherents, sound money advocates. Uh, and nowadays you have Bitcoin. Uh, those who prefer Bitcoin is in the same camp. All of them are basically saying the same thing, which we need to have a fixed supply of money so that we don't have these bubble types of behavior that get out of control and then lead to bank panics and bank failures. Yep. And the counter argument to that is, well, if you have a fixed money system, what you're going to end up with is bank failures, bank panics, and depressions anyway, because you can't solve human nature. Yep. Whether the system is fixed money or not, historically speaking, what you find out, it was find out is, the more fixed the monetary system, the more fixed the official monetary system, the more people will invent new money, new forms of money to get around that. In fact, that's what the euro dollar system actually was to begin with. And there are also major downside constraints to having a fixed monetary system, which we're sort of living through over the last 15 years. Contrary to popular perception, the Fed doesn't print money. The Fed hasn't been printing money over the last 15 years. In fact, commercial bank money around the world has contracted and has never come back. Yep. And the consequences of that are the economic growth that never happened. So you don't realize the fact that we've been stifling the global economy for 15 years because of an insufficient supply of money and credit. So what I like to get people to think of is that we don't need a, a, a system that's too elastic, like the euro dollar system, where there's no constraints, or there's, there's not enough constraint on money creation. We need to focus more on intermediation, but also we don't want the opposite system where we have 100% reserves, fixed money system, because that will leave us exposed to quasi-money introduction, as well as the same type of uh, stupid, insane human behavior anyway. The reason we have business cycles isn't really about the money supply. It's about the fact that humans, when things are going well, just take it a step further and a step further until it breaks. Yep. The problem is humanity, not the monetary system. And you're not going to fix humanity through a fixed money system. So there's got to be a happy medium here. We have enough elastic currency that when we do have the inevitable downturn, it doesn't turn into something that creates a depression. It doesn't turn into something that creates bank runs and actual deflation like we saw in 2008. We don't need those types of downsides, but we need to recognize that free market capitalism, when it's doing things well, is still inherently messy. It will be, you know, it'll be unequal. It'll be, um, it'll be lumpy. Everything goes well, then suddenly everything doesn't go well. 
We should try to maximize the, the times when things are going well and minimize the downside when things are not going well, which of course sounds very Keynesian, right? Because that's that's the Keynesian mantra where you, you fill in the troughs without shaving off the peaks. And the way they want to do it is of course through elastic currency channeled into the government. So my view is that we should have an elastic currency that doesn't have anything to do with the government, but at least has some re realistic and legitimate constraints that don't take that don't allow the system to get into the same types of extremes that we saw, you know, in the middle the 1990s into the 2000s. Uh huh. And and you know, so and exactly. So sort of on that, oh, um, you know, would it be so? Would it be fair to argue that you know, when it comes to the Keynesian mantra, which is sort of I guess followed uh, pretty much globally at this point, um, when we see for example, you know, say during the pandemic, you know, economic activity declined, you know, the government stepped in with some of the largest deficits we've ever seen and, you know, sort of implemented this in a different form. You know, they literally gave cash, literally put cash in, you know, people's accounts um, and told them to, you know, hey, you know, you know, you lost your job during this pandemic, well, go spend, go spend money, you know, you you know, as a business, if you lost some money during this pandemic, well, here's, you know, here's some PPP loans and, um, you know, you get, and then, you know, there's also a chance that you get loan forgiveness and so on. And so, you know, you had this sort of um, extreme, you know, sort of fiscal largesse in the system and, um, and, you know, I guess in, I guess in economic theory, you know, what, what this does is, you know, it, it shifts, it, it shifts the aggregate demand curve to the right. And so, you know, this, you know, would it be fair to argue then that this, you know, government spending is something that can, as much as it does not create, I guess, the good kind of inflation or a meaningful long-term kind of um, inflation that the Fed wants, um, it is actually, at least in the short run, a good solution to um, bringing inflation higher. Like, it's a lot better than the alternative where the government does not step in at all and you sort of end up with, say, you know, in 1929, you know, you know threatening to reappear. Well, there's a couple things here. There's a lot of things going on here. And for... Number one, we're we're actually paying for all that government interference in the economy in two thousand in twenty twenty. Now you could make the argument as you're just making that there's there was an economic case for doing it. There's a moral case for doing it, which just which goes back to the beginning. Okay, I don't want to get into pandemic politics, but you know the the government caused the problem here by shutting down the economy, and then they're going to solve it by just shoving a bunch of money into it. Um, that just created massive distortion. So we had. The pandemic distortions, we have the government lockdown distortions, and then the government trying to solve it with this massive harmful. Uh, maybe it was maybe it was justified in the short run, but again, as I said, those massive distortions in the economy are exactly what we're paying for right now, because uh, they forced a lot of people out of work. Not all those people have gone back to work for various reasons, and they tried to paper it over by saying, "Well, here's a here's a chunk of cash." So you lost your job, but you have some cash and you think, well, if this works, then the economy will come back up and recover. And then while you you have cash to tide you over while you have no employment, you'll have a job on the other side because the economy is working again. But as we found out, that didn't happen. The participation rate went down. We have fewer jobs per capita than we did beforehand. So we gave a lot of people money. They spent a lot of it, but we have fewer people working today than we had before. So again, that's a massive distortion in the Labor shortage. economic system that over the long run is going to be quite harmful. We have fewer people working, which means they have less redistribution of income. They have less spending power in the long term. So short run trade-off versus long run actual wealth and uh, actual economic potential. And it was great in the short run, except that everybody thought that the consumer price acceleration 
Was the economy being red hot when it was just the, the size and scale of these harmful distortions? And that's again, what I get back to before, the market curves were shifting, flattening toward inversion in 2021 because the market said, eventually we're gonna have to revert to economic potential and economic potential is a lot less than everybody thinks it is. And over time, that's what's happened. As we get further and further away from those government distortions, more and more we're depending upon incomes and potential. And it's a lot less than people thought it would be. Even though you look at it in nominal terms, we still, you know, nominal incomes are rising, but it's not enough to pay for the distortion. The price level changed way too much. So you can make the argument, and it's not all that persuasive that governments had to do what they had to do at the time, but okay, that's fine. But what happens afterward? Because all those economists simply assume by doing this, the economy would naturally heal itself. If you give it enough time that it doesn't turn into a 1929 style debacle or disaster or catastrophe, then it will just naturally go back to the way it was before when there is no reason to believe that. I mean, we went through this in 2008 and 2009. The economy fell off. It never came back. So we're kind of going through the same thing here where the markets see the the economic potential as well as the monetary potential, they were fell off, they were papered over for a while by mass, massive in interventions, but at some point the whole system has to revert to its fundamental baseline. And that's not gonna be good, that's not gonna be pain-free, that's gonna be painful. And as time goes on, the further we get away from those distortions, the more it looks like, yep, it's going to be painful. And it's not just here, it's not just the US, it's, it's worldwide. Because the 2020, for all, everything that happened, 2020, 2021, um, this was massive global distortions. Yeah, just to sort of push back against that. Um, so, I, you know, would it be fair to argue that, you know, in say 2008, 2009, I mean, sure, you, you had tar, but, you know, fiscal policy was still way too restrictive, especially in um, the U.S. and in Europe, say, compared to the COVID-19 pandemic. And um, as much as, you know, as much as, uh, you know, I would or, you know, most people would agree with you that, you know, say the monetary or what the Fed does in terms of QE, once they understand how QE works, you know, that does not directly cause inflation. What does cause inflation is, you know, fiscal policy. And as much as it's not the good kind of inflation, would it be fair to argue that in 2008-09, you know, we just did not have enough fiscal policy versus, now, you know, versus the COVID-19 pandemic? No, I don't agree with that at all. I think actually fiscal policy over the long run is deflationary because it, it distorts the economy and leads to longer run consequences that we we're just talking about. So if you had a major fiscal intervention, which by the way, Sri, you got to remember, you probably don't remember this because you're young, but back then everybody looked at the ARRA bill in 2009 as if it was 2020 style. They thought, oh my God, this is huge. This is going to be massive. So if they had the government done more, that would have changed the situation? No, because that's not what really caused consumer prices to go up into, in 2021 and 2020 and 2021. It was the combination, as you said before, the rightward shift in the demand curve, but also the inelasticity in supply because of the unique factors surrounding the pandemic. Uh, we had a rash of demand for goods because everybody was locked in their homes and spending on amazon.com spending Uncle Sam's nickels on Amazon.com, but that didn't put people back to work in the factories. We didn't have people unloading containers in the West Coast ports. It created these enormous distortions. We didn't have those back in, 20, in 2009. So had the government done more, it probably wouldn't have led to an outbreak of consumer prices back then. Mm -hmm. uh, and again, 
back then everybody thought this was monstrous in, uh, monstrous fiscal spending anyway. So I would argue that the difference between 2009 and 2020, 2021 wasn't the level of government intervention, it was the supply restrictions and the, globally, not just in the US, the pandemic problems. That's what really caused the outbreak of consumer prices. And then once those interventions are over, the economy goes back to its potential either way. So you have some short run impacts, whether it's 2009 or 2021, and then we're right back in the mess that we were in before, which it took economists a long time to realize by say 2015, 16 and 17, the economy was never coming back, no matter what was happening. So it wasn't fiscal restraint. Yep. They've come up with all sorts of other reasons why the economy, they say, oh, the labor force is too lazy. There's too many drug addicts. You know, there, there's too many baby boomers retiring when it's actually macro factors. And so what we're going to see this time is, well, we've already seen it. We've already heard about, oh, there's a labor shortage because of YOLO. Everybody's gone, you know, they've gone to the beach on, on, on the government savings. Um, retirees again, uh, rigidity in the labor market. So we're already setting ourselves up to a repeat lack of recovery once we get oh, past yeah. this consumer price imbalance, which was caused by more of the supply restrictions than anything else. And so what you're saying is so what we're seeing now, you know, as much as it might have caused inflation in the short run, you know, in the long run, um, unless, you know, government continues to increase its deficit at the same rate, which would be ridiculous. Um, it's not really going to cause um, a difference in, in the long and what the economy does in the long run. And so and that, again, that this... gets us back to the inverted yield curve, because the inverted yield curve is low growth, low inflation expectations. Understanding, yeah. understanding that governments are going to continue spending money. So the government, the markets are not looking at these government deficits as inflationary because they're not inflationary. Markets are looking at these government deficits as ah. Oh, the government's going to get more involved in the economy and just make it even worse. It's going to erode even more potential because there's one thing the government is best at is screwing up the economy, causing all sorts of harmful dis distortions as it, as, as it has already demonstrated over the last couple of years. So yeah. markets are saying inflation, this was a temporary transitory thing. And I know people don't like using that term because how can it be two years and we're still talking about transitory, but Supply shocks have taken several years to work themselves out throughout history. Go back to the 40s and 50s. They were not short term. They were transitory, but sometimes it took two years to get from one end to the other. Yep. You know, from now on, you know, when you write about transitory, you, you need to say T, then put the asterisk and then write the rest of the word. It's almost become a swear word. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and, so, and, so, and so, you know, going forward, um, no, one thing that has been interesting is um, there's this guy named Scott Rupner who uh, writes who writes a lot of stuff about market microstructure for Goldman Sachs, and in one of his recent uh, recent research reports, you know, he sort of talked about how fixed income liquidity in general, say on the two year uh, on the two year bonds or the five year bond, has actually just and you know shares the chart, you know, it's just by completely down, and so you know it's very interesting how you know liquidity in the fixed income market has also started to dry up. It sort of adds to you know the point that you're making that you know this problem you know may very uh, may very well just not be over. Yeah, a lot of that has to do with what really happened in March 2022. Um, is that you know people get that one wrong? Too. They you know it wasn't about the repo market. It was it was about the repo. It wasn't about the treasury market. Everybody's all oh, the treasury market's breaking down. Well, that that's not that was never the case. 
Um, you had massive mm -hmm. selling in illiquid securities because not all treasuries are liquid. Off-the-run treasuries are illiquid. So you can't expect the market to absorb illiquid instruments that are being fired sailed all at the same time. That's not the treasury market breakdown. As I said before with SVB, it's why is everybody forced to be forced to sell these assets to begin with? It's because there's lack of liquidity. But what dealers have done since March 2020 is said, I don't really want to make a market in illiquid instruments because there could come a day where I get stuck with these things again. So they've cut back on capacity which is cutting back on liquidity in the treasury market. The on-the-run stuff is still as liquid as ever, but there's less capacity in treasuries because dealers yeah. learned a lesson in March 2020 that the best you can hope for from the Fed is after everything's broken, they might come in and say, I'm going to buy some bonds. That doesn't actually help <laughs> when everything has already happened, when the, when the mess is already made and the yeah. janitor comes in and starts cleaning up, you know, that looks good because you clean everything up afterward and the public comes in and says, oh, everything's spotless. But if you were there beforehand and saw the mess getting created, the last thing you want to do is participate in that, in mess, that mess again. Yeah. And so going forward, you know, what what is sort of, you know, your belief is, so, you know, I guess sort of the way to ask this would be, you know, you know think of, uh, you know, going back to your systems analogy, you know, a system typically has many nodes and, you know, one of the nodes is this regional banking system, which is sort of, <laughs> given up you know what's sort of the you know what is you know who's the most vulnerable um in the sort of i guess interconnected monetary or financial system um going forward at least in your opinion yeah it's it's tough to tell because as soon as you think it's got to be the regional banks because we already saw that we know their their cash cushions are low but then again you think well regional banks are now using the fed's discount window they're getting fhlb advances through at least we assume they are given that bloomberg report which suggested you know, a couple hundred billion in debt being sold by the FHLBs, which that can only be your demand for advances. So it may be that regional banks who you would think would be the most vulnerable, maybe they've bolstered their cash positions going forward. So maybe that's not the issue. And you also have to believe that that's going on across the entire system too. And so I always talk about the lessons of Bear Stearns, which the lessons of Bear Stearns that regulators learned and the lessons that were actually appropriate and applied to the situation by the marketplace were you can't count on the market. You can't count on the liquidity system. In a fragile monetary situation, you have to build up your cash cushion. You have to de-risk your portfolio and you have to hedge where you can, where you can, wherever you can. And what that does is that improves your individual position, but it leaves the rest of the system exposed to these types of things. So it's any, any individual firms who are not able to build a cash or collateral position, who are not able to de-risk their portfolio, because like Silicon Valley Bank, maybe there's something preventing them from doing that. We don't really know what that was. Yeah. You're not able to afford what can become extremely expensive hedges. Mm -hmm. Those are the individuals, those are the funds, the institutions, maybe even the countries who are unable to do those things who would be over overexposed to the situation where everybody else is doing the same thing. So as the tide continues to go out money-wise, because banks are taking very serious defensive, prudent defensive actions, if not everybody can do that, you're the you're going to be the next one we hear about. <laughs> Got it. And so in a way, everyone is now stepping up, you know, after seeing what happened to these regional banks, everyone is now trying to sort of protect themselves against what I guess could happen going forward to say, you know, another you know, 2008 kind of event that, you know, no bank wants to stand. It, it makes sense, right? Because 
if you're a bank manager, you're running a bank, you look at uh, Bear Stearns, you look at SVB or even Credit Suisse. You look at Credit Suisse and say, I don't want to be them because I just got wiped out. Yeah. Even though Credit Suisse as a firm was absorbed by UBS and it looks like a systemic win because you didn't have a failure, bank managers look at that very differently. They look at that as a failure. It means I can be the next Credit Suisse, which means everything that I have worked for, my equity, that all gets wiped out. So in the wake of Bear Stearns, and I guarantee you in the wake of the bank stuff that we've seen over the last couple of weeks, bank managers all over the world are saying, I'm not going to be next. As long as they're able to, if they're building up their defensive measures, they're bolstering their liquidity conditions, they're raising collateral because, I mean, we've seen collateral runs and collateral indications that are just off the charts yeah. because they're building up their liquidity profiles because they don't, this is not about making money. The next couple of months are going to be about surviving, survival. So build up your cash cushion, de-risk if you can. But if you can't, we're probably going to be hearing about you on the uh, on the front pages. Yeah, exactly. And so in a way, everyone is now, I guess, worried at the same time that, you know, they would be the next Credit Suisse. And, you know, hopefully, you know, hopefully we don't see another one of those events. Um but, 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 you know, sort of, you know, sort of from, for, you know, from say an investor standpoint, you know, what should, I guess, investors be considering in this situation? So, you know, are you, is you, is you also considering your view is that, you know, interest rates are going to decline. That's mostly been priced in by the market. You know, what, you know, what do you think investors or what do you think the market is getting wrong at this point? Well, you look at, I mean, interest rates decline. I don't know if that's priced in fully yet because you look at some of these curves. Look I mean, at the they, could, they could decline a lot faster than what the price Yeah, is. exactly. They could decline faster and go a lot farther than you think. I mean, even in 2008, nobody was anticipating the speed at which rates were cut. Not that rate cuts do any good because obviously they didn't do any good. But I mean, there was a period in late December 2007 into early 2008 where the Fed was cutting rates by 50, 75 basis points almost at a time because of the way things were going at the time and believing that rate cuts were actually helping when they didn't do a damn thing. But it's it could be that rate cuts come much farther and faster. In fact, I think that's why the curves have been skewed so far over the last couple of weeks since everything happened. What you've seen is that uh, contracts in say Euro dollar futures in 2024, those have been bid up, up relative to those in 2023 because the market still doesn't know exactly when all of this shakes out. It's still saying, when it does finally happen, rate cuts are likely to happen fast and furious. We, we don't know exactly when or how that, uh, how that develops. And I would also say for the stock market, the stock market originally, the, initially the, the knee-jerk reaction is going to be positive. As we've seen, I mean, stocks yeah. barely noticed anything in March because there's this idea, the pervasive idea, that all the pain in the stock market is because of the Fed's rate hikes. So anything that ends the Fed's rate hikes and begin introduces rate cuts, that has to be stock positive, equity positive, at least until everybody remembers that, oh, the reason the Fed is cutting rates is because of a whole lot of bad stuff that is usually not good for stocks. So you may see a rally in shares like we did in 2007. You know, the stock market rallied to record highs in October of 2007 after the crisis had already began. Uh, on the premise that the Fed was cutting rates, as it had done in the month before in September 2007. So you could see these short-term rally, short rallies in stocks on the idea that, oh, the Fed has stopped hiking rates and it's going to start cutting. This is going to be great until, boom, 
it starts to dawn on everybody that the reason the Fed cuts rates is for re for for things that have happened that are not going to be good for the stock market. It's at the very least uh, probably nasty recession and everything else. So yep, yep, a hundred percent. Awesome, Jeff. You know, with the you know we sort of uh, we sort of come to the end of our uh, end of our conversation. You know, is there you know before we so I guess drop off? You know, are there any closing thoughts or anything that you want to leave our audience with? It's funny, you know. It's we started out. I mean, there's there's so much to talk about here, which is always a bad sign. It's it we should we should long for the days when we don't really have much to discuss because there's really nothing interesting going on. But what that means is that we need to be very careful, very vigilant. And I don't mean vigilant in the sense of what did Jay Powell or Janet Yellen say or Christine Lagarde or some you know European official. Vigilant in looking at the markets and understanding the information that they're telling us. Because the situation, as you're as you're implying here, it can involve it can evolve very quickly and in ways that maybe you aren't ready for, ready for. So I, I think the, the takeaway here is that there are so many things to be looking at and to be interested in. You have to look at a broad cross section of not just markets but everything else that that, uh, that you can get your hands on and try to really put it, put together a comprehensive picture of what you what think is, is happening, on. whether or not it may it, whether or not it agrees with. The official mainstream view or not. In fact, the more it diverges from the mainstream view, the probably that's the more likely you're on the right track. <laughs> awesome, exactly. And you know, you can uh, and you know, Jeff. You know, one thank you for being on the podcast. It was awesome to have you on again. You know, audience. Uh, you know, the audience can find more of Jeff's work at eurodollar.university and um, also find you on Twitter at Jeff Snyder underscore AIP. Right? I think just it's still AIP. <laughs> Yeah, it's exactly underscore AIP. Or you can find me on YouTube. It's at Eurodollar University too. Yep, exactly. I think you host a podcast, right? On uh, on exactly this. So awesome. Jeff, with that, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It was a pleasure having you on again. My pleasure. Always good to see you, Sri. Always good to talk about this stuff. Thank you for listening to Market Champions. To never miss an episode, make sure to subscribe and we'll see you next time.